0: I want to give you four thoughts concerning uh, nations tonight. Four thoughts concerning nations. And these are found right there in your notes, so you can just follow along with me. The, the first thing I want you to see about nations, as we think about this table of nations in chapter 10 and what God did uh, among the, among humanity in chapter 11, I want you to think about uh, this reality. God cares about nations. God cares about about nations. Hey, quick question. Do you do you care about the nations? Do you think about them? Do you think about their their lostness, their need to hear about Christ? Do you think about their their condition? Do you think about their problems and their plights and their potentials? Do you think about the nations? Because God cares about the nations. If, if you read the Bible, even a little bit, I mean, if you just consistently get into God's Word, you will see that there's this concern in the heart of God for nations, for the, the people groups of the Earth. Now, what I've given you there is I've given you an outline of chapter 10. This comes from Old Testament scholar Alan Ross. And the reason I just cut and pasted the outline into your notes is because he says it a whole lot better than I can. So he gives very summary, concise statements about uh, chapter 10. So let me kind of just walk you through what is happening here in chapter 10. First of all, in verse 1, you see a title. Uh, the title tells us that the purpose of this chapter is to show us what became of Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah after the flood. That's the purpose of chapter ten. So, what happened to these three sons, and and how did they uh, how did they fare after the flood? Now, part one of this outline. Uh, Relays information about the descendants of Japheth, settled in the that who settled in the north and the west, and became the founders of the Greek and Scythian tribes. You can read about that in verses two through five. As a matter of fact, let's just let's just look at those very quickly together. Genesis chapter two, I mean chapter chapter ten, verse two. The Bible says, "The sons of Japheth: Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras, The sons of Gomer: Ashkenaz, Rephath, Togarma, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, and Dodanim. Uh, as many of you probably know, Claire and I are expecting our fourth child, and we've been studying this list of names to figure out if 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 we want to go with Dodanim or Togarma. We're not sure yet. We're we're going back and forth. Just kidding. Someone said no. I'm just just joking. Just kidding. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with their own language, by their clans in their nations. Then we go to look at the sons of Ham, which is part two of this outline. The descendants of Ham settled in the areas of Egypt and Canaan. And from these tribes came the founders of the great cities of the east. This is found in verses 6 through 20. So look what it says in verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt. Uh, Cush uh, is ancient Ethiopia, Egypt. Kut and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Saptah, Ramah, and Sabteca, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Now, this is a really important description here. The first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was what? Babel. So, Nimrod was a mighty man. Uh, scholars believe he was a, a mighty warrior, sort of a conquest-type leader, and he founded Babel. So keep that in mind. Put that in the back of your mind. Babel, Erech, uh, Akkad, and Kalah in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-er, Rehoboth, uh, Kalah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great uh, city. So notice we've mentioned Bab- Babel, which becomes Babylon, and then Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, both future enemies of Israel, and both instruments in the hands of God to judge Israel. So just kind of keep that in mind as well. Egypt, who figure prominently in the history of Israel. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, uh, Nafutuhim, Pathrusim, Kalimim. Kazluhim, uh, from whom the Philistines came, and Caphtor. You said, wait, how do you know how to pronounce all those names? I don't, but you don't either. Amen. <laughs> Verse 15 Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah. you Have heard of those cities before? Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboim, as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So part one, sons of Japheth. Part two, sons of Ham. Part three is Shem. Now remember, Shem is the oldest of Noah's sons. Earlier in the narrative, we see Shem, Ham, Japheth. But here, Shem is last in, uh, uh, in his descriptive order. Why is Shem last? Because Shem is the father of the Semites, uh, the father of somebody very important. I'll show you here in just a moment. Look what it says in verse 21. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born: the sons of Shem, uh, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram, sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash and it goes on to tell us more about the descendants of Shem. We'll talk some more about that in just a moment. That's part three: the descendants of Shem, the ancestor of Eber, which, by the way, Eber most people believe, most scholars believe, is the root of the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew people, Hebrews, as it comes from that word. Eber settled in the eastern lands in the region of the Persian Gulf, and it gives some information there about the descendants of Shem. And so, the summary is found in verse thirty-two of this chapter. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. Notice that, in their nations. And from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And so Alan Ross gives us a summary statement about chapter 10. He said, wait, how would you sum up chapter 10? Well, here it is. From Shem, Ham, and Japheth descended all the nations of the world in their lands and according to their languages. So we see from that that God knows or God cares about the nations. Because if you look there in your notes... Notice that God knows where the nations are. Notice he knows their precise location, where they settled. Now, remember, well, let's just ask, who wrote, who wrote Genesis? Well, God wrote it. Who, who was the human instrument that God used to write down the words? Moses, right, on Mount Sinai. And so God's giving him this very detailed information about nations, and he knows where they are. Also, God knows the names of these nations. He knows their precise location, and he knows their names. He knows their lineage. He knows their background. He knows their future. God knows the names of these nations. Now, here's the question. Why would God give such precise information about nations to Moses? What's the big deal? The big deal is God cares about nations. He cares about them. He has a plan for them. He's sovereign over them. He's working so that... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But God cares about the nations. And so the question for you tonight is, do you? Do you care about the nations? Do you have the heart of God related to the nations? Now, here's the second major thing I want you to see about chapters 10 and 11. The human race is united in ancestry. The human race is united in ancestry. Genesis 10.1, Genesis 10.32 says that, that the nations as they are today can all trace their lineage back to Shem or Ham or Japheth who were sons of Noah. So no matter where you live on the face of this earth, no matter what your background is, no matter what language you speak, no matter what your ethnicity is, you can trace yourself back to one of the sons of Noah, trace yourself uh, lineage back to Noah himself. And so we're reminded... That the human race is united in ancestry, we are all uh we all are in the same family, so to speak, the same humanity, so to speak. going back to Noah, you know when i when I grew up, I remember people saying, even in church life, things like this, well, we don't need any more of those foreigners coming to our country, which was funny on a lot of different levels, number one. Their family came from another country, right? We're all here because our ancestors came over across the big ocean. That's why we're here today. So uh, that was funny from that perspective. But number two, uh, those foreigners they're talking about are in the same family. They, they, they're all, they, they all go back to Noah, right? We're all united in ancestry. We can all trace our lineage back to one of Noah's sons and thus to Noah himself. So we should have a respect for all peoples. And value them as fellow humans. We should have a respect for all peoples and value them as fellow humans. People, listen, people that believe the Bible. People that believe the Bible is the word of God. People that understand the witness of Scripture should value other humans. We should lead the way in valuing and respecting all peoples on the face of this earth. Because we know we all come from Noah, Right? We know that. We know the Bible. We believe the Bible. And so Christians should lead the way, should should blaze a trail when it comes to caring for, loving, valuing other people, even if they're much different than we are, right? The human race is united in ancestry. But there's a third thing I want you to see here. The human race is united in ancestry... But the human race is greatly divided because of God's judgment. The human race is greatly divided because of God's judgment. So look what it says in Genesis chapter 2 verse 25. I mean chapter 10, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 10 verse 25. To Eber, which again scholars believe is the the name that we get Hebrews from, to Eber were born two sons the name of the one was Peleg for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan now the word Peleg means division that's what the word means that's what the name means and so Eber had two sons one was Peleg the reason named him Peleg is because the earth was divided so we see here in chapter 10 that all of humanity has common ancestry okay if you if if ancestry.com were able we could If they had all the information, we could all go back to Noah, right? Anybody do Ancestry.com in here? Anybody do that? Some of you? Okay, all right, good. Um, But there's great division in humanity, is there not? We speak different languages. We live in different places. We have different political ideologies. So what's the deal? Why are we so divided? Why was Peleg named division? And why is there this mention of... The division on the face of the earth. Well, there's a pause in the genealogy to tell us why there's division. And that's when we get to uh, chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. We're going to see the story as to why there was division among the nations. So let's see in chapter 11 what caused this great division among the nations. We see humanity in chapter 11 gathering on the plains of Shinar. Look what it says. The whole earth had one language. And the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So we see humanity, after the days of Noah, settling and gathering and living together on the plains of Shinar. So after the flood, this is in your notes, humanity gathered and settled, listen, in direct disobedience to God. What they were doing here on the plains of Shinar was direct defiance in the face of God. It says there in verse 2, they found a plain and settled there. Look in verse 4. It says, They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They're saying, Let's build something to rally around so we can all stay together. We don't want to be dispersed. We don't want to go to the ends of earth. We want to be together. We want to be one big mass of humanity. So why is that disobedience? It's disobedience because of what God told Noah's sons in Genesis 9. Look what it says in Genesis 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and what? fill the earth. Look what it says in verse 7. You be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So God's plan was for humanity to multiply and and take dominion over the face of the earth, to fill the earth. But these folks on the plains of Shinar say, nope, we don't want to be dispersed. We don't want to be scattered. We want to be together. We want to make a name for ourselves. And so The the humanity is gathering together, settling together in direct disobedience to God. Now, why were they so intent on gathering together? Let me give you three thoughts. Number one, in their gathering, they could combine their ingenuity. Because of common grace, because humans are created in the image of God, we bear as a stamp on our nature divine creativity. In other words, the the creativity that is in the, the nature of God has been Given to us as we are made in his image. So we have the ability to create. And the common grace that we have allows us to figure out some things and and function and build and, and invent. And that's what's happening here. They're uh, finding some technology for building. Look what it says in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 11. They said to one another, Come... Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So They're figuring out how to make good materials for uh, great buildings. They're, they're figuring out how to build sturdy structures. They're learning some things. And So in their gathering, they could combine all of their human ingenuity. And there would be no limit to the things they could invent and accomplish as united humanity. Also in their gathering, they could, by the way, Pursuing technology and inventing things is is wonderful unless it's used to oppose God. Right? And so if these folks on the plains of Shinar were gathering for the sake of ingenuity, but their hearts weren't, weren't fearing God, then there is no telling what they could come up with to rebel against God. So, number two, in their gathering, they could pursue man-made religion. They could pursue man-made religion. I think what's happening here, as these folks gather and build a tower, is they are building a place of worship. That's what's happening here in this text. Henry Morris writes in his famous book, The Genesis Flood, that in in his desire to build a great empire, Nimrod, the founder of Babel, realized that the people needed a religious motivation strong enough to overcome their knowledge that God had commanded them to scatter abroad on the earth. He feels that the tower satisfied that need and was therefore dedicated to heaven and its angelic host. So Henry Morris writes that Nimrod started to build this tower as a rallying point for those that were rebelling against God. They needed a symbol to rally around. They needed something to worship if they were going to rebel against God. They were going to worship something. They weren't going to worship the true God. What were they going to worship? Well, I believe that religion is taking place here because the Bible traces all false religions back to Babylon. Do you know that? All false religions are traced back to uh, Babylon. Hold your place. Turn to Revelation chapter 17. Go from the first book in the Bible to the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 17, verse 5. On her forehead was written the name of mystery Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth abominations. Again, the 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 idea of of uh, infidelity, prostitutes, and the idea of abominations were were ideas that encapsulated false religion, and so Bab- Babylon here is is commented on as being the the founder of all these abominations and all these uh, in uh, unfaithful worshippers of false gods. So there's evidence that. Babylon was, or the Tower of Babel was a place of worship in, uh, in history. Henry Morse writes, The essential identity of the various gods and goddesses of Rome, Greece, India, and Egypt and other nations with the original pantheon of the Babylonians is well established. Matter of fact, there is some historical research that says Nimrod himself, remember the man that founded Babylon? Nimrod himself was apparently later deified as the chief god, Marduk, of Babylon. He became... Uh, worshiped as a god. And so the, the, the gods that were worshiped in Babylon became the foundation for all the other false gods that the nations used around that area. And then I want you to see back in Genesis 11 the description of the tower, which I think speaks of religion, speaks of worship. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, some translations say, with a tower that reaches up to the heavens. But that preposition can be translated different ways. It could be in the heavens or beside the heavens. And so the idea was to build a tower that was, that was toward the heavens. Now, why would they want to build a tower that was high and toward the heavens? What was the deal there? Well, scholars believe this was probably an early attempt at astrology. Astrology, uh, which focuses on the study of the zodiac, originated, you know where? Guess. Babylon. Babylon. And so probably what's happening here is they are building a place from which which they could worship the stars and build this system of astrology and, and build their lives on the the heavens that 's probably what's happening here, and so this this tower was meant to to be toward the heavens as a place of worship. so in their gathering, they could combine their ingenuity in their gathering, they could pursue man-made religion. but third, in their gathering, they could exalt themselves. Look what it says in chapter eleven verse four. They say, "Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower." With its top in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves. So they gather together so they could exalt themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. Instead of worshiping the Creator, they're worshiping themselves. Instead of, instead of their lives being, being centered around the God who made them, their lives are centered around themselves, around humanity. They've exchanged the worship of the one true God for worship of the created order. And so they are exalting themselves. So what happens here? What's God going to do about it? Well, if you look in your notes, God, who is sovereign over the nations, judged humanity by confusing their language. Now look what it says in Genesis 11, verse 5. I love this. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So they're trying to build this really high tower, but God has to come down to look at it. God's, God's bigger than their tower. and This is an anthropomorphism. This is a, uh, a way to give God human characteristics so we understand his exalted position. He, he doesn't actually have to come down. He sees everything from his exalted place in, in heaven. But he, but he comes down, it says, to see this tower. He comes down to see uh, what they are doing. And he is, he is exalted over the best that man could do. He came down to see the city and the tower which they had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. In other words, there's no telling what these folks who've turned their hearts from me can come up with when they are united in disobeying me. Come. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. They left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. From there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. There's a play on words there, Babel and babbling. They, They could not understand one another because God confused their language. So God who is sovereign over all the nations, judged humanity by confusing their language. It kind of reminds me of Psalm 2 when it says, the nations rage against God. And it says, the Lord who is in the heavens laughs. (laughs) He laughs at the feeble attempts of humanity to rebel against him. Alan Ross writes, when the human race settled together to preserve their unity and developed their fame by building a grandiose city tower. The Lord interrupted their collective apostasy and scattered them across the face of the earth by confusing the language that united them. So now we see why chapter 10 is like chapter 10 is. Chapter 10 records that the people were scattered and the name Peleg, division. People were divided. Why? Because of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Now, this has... Um, this has been a, a constant um, challenge for humanity. The fact that we all speak different languages. How many? Just curiosity. How many in here speak more than one language? Raise your hand if you speak more than one language. Raise your hand. How I want see it. Raise your hand. High. Okay, I'm counting two, maybe three. All right. If you lived in Europe, you'd probably speak three, at least, May, maybe four. Of just because of your proximity to other nations that speak different languages. And that's true in other parts of the world as well. Uh, but you understand, if you've ever been around someone that speaks a different language, how, how difficult and how frustrating uh, that could be. I remember my brother, my, my older brother, my, well, my only brother who's older, he, uh, he, was, he was a good student. He, he, got the, uh, he got the brains of the family. Um, I tell him I got the looks, but he got the brains. And he, he got the brains of it. He was he was valedictorian and all that. And he was he was pretty good at Spanish. He had gotten where he could learn. I mean, he was a high school student, but he got to where he knew Spanish pretty well. So well, in fact, that the the local sheriff's department would call him when they arrested someone who spoke Spanish. And they would call and say, hey, we can't understand this guy. And so my brother, I, sometimes in the middle of the night, would get up and he'd get on the phone and help them understand uh, what this person was saying. And, and I remember way back then, you know, language is definitely a barrier. It causes great uh, confusion all around our world. It is, a, it is a real challenge when it comes to missions work. When, when we send personnel out from our church and they go and plant their lives somewhere, Uh, overseas or a cross-cultural setting, they're going to just spend their first year doing language training so they can converse and find their way around and, and communicate the gospel and the word of God. And so the fact that God confused the languages here in chapter 11 has been a constant challenge for humanity even until this day. But it was an act of judgment on God's part. Which leads me to the fourth thing. We're talking about the nations here. We're almost done. But God cares about the nations. The human race is united in ancestry. The human race is greatly divided because of God's judgment. But fourth, God desires for the nations to be united in Christ. In chapter 11, he scatters them. In chapters 12 through the rest of the Bible and into human history up to today's time, he is gathering people. He is gathering people from every nation united by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, look what it says in chapter 11, verse 10. We had the little excerpt as to why the nations were divided, but we get back to the ancestry of Shem in chapter 11, verse 10. To reiterate, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpakshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpakshad 500 years, had other sons and daughters. And Arpakshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpakshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years, had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years, had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered. Peleg, there he is again, Peleg, the, the, the one whose name means division. Eber lived after he fathered Peleg four hundred and thirty years, had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived thirty years, he fathered Ru, and Peleg lived after he fathered Ru two hundred and nine years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived thirty-two years, he fathered Surig, and Ru lived after he fathered Surig 207 years and had other sons and daughters. Now he's going somewhere, don't 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 lose him. He's going somewhere. When Surig had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Surig lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years, had other sons and daughters. Now the names are starting to sound a little bit more familiar. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived, Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years, had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered who? Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Remember Lot? talk a lot about Lot in the coming weeks. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So, there's a point to all this genealogy. God is showing us that after the ark, Shem and Ham and Japheth had descendants. And Shem, the oldest son of Noah, was the father of the Semitic peoples. And he gives us some names. And we start to recognize names like Abram and Sarah. And Lot, and the stage is set for the time of the patriarchs. the, the, the end of chapter eleven marks the end of the of the pre-patriarchal period uh, of God's creative work. So, what are we seeing here? Why is uh, Why is God showing us that Shem leads to Abram and beyond? Because listen, in the aftermath of humanity's rebellion at Babel. God is prepared to make a breathtaking promise to Abraham, a descendant of Shem. In the aftermath of humanity's rebellion at Babel, God is prepared to make a breathtaking promise to Abraham, a descendant of Shem. We're going to look at that promise next week, Genesis chapter 12, but I'll give you just a little bit of a heads up. That promise involves a blessing for all the peoples of the earth. God judged them at Babel scattered them, gave them different languages. But from chapter 12 to the end of the Bible, into human history, to today's time, God is doing a gathering work, calling people from all the people groups, all the nations, on the face of the earth, so they can be one in Christ. And one day, when we get to heaven, if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we get to heaven... There will be representatives around the throne of King Jesus from every nation. You know why? God cares about the nations. You say, wait, why why does God care so much about the nations knowing him? About the nations receiving blessing through the descendants of Abraham, through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Why is God calling out representatives from every nation? Why will there be people from every tribe and tongue around the throne in heaven? Why is God doing that? Because God cares about His glory. And God is worthy of worship from every nation. Every language should have someone in that language worshiping the one true God. Amen? And God is working to see that happen. In our day and time, he invites us to be a part of that. So God desires for the nations to be united in Christ. It's what he's doing in Christ. Jew, Gentile, everyone, if they know Christ, are brought into the same family, the same kingdom, worshippers of the one true God. So that's what chapters 10 and 11 are about. They're about the nations. God cares about the nations. God is make, about to make a promise to Abraham that concerns the nations. We'll study that next week. Abrahamic covenant. But he cares about the nations. That's his heart. And the question comes back to you and to me. Do we care about the nations? Do we care about the nation? Do we care about God's glory among the nations? So here's kind of my application, just very quickly. Number one, you ought to care about what's going on in the world. Care about the nations. Learn learn a little of just basic geography, continents, countries, geopolitical entities. Learn what's going on in those nations. There's a great resource called Operation World. You can access it online, or you can buy a big, thick book at the Christian bookstore called Operation World. But the, the Operation World goes through every uh, geopolitical nation, uh, in the world, and it gives you some information about them, some religious information, shares with you how you can pray for that nation, shares the challenges that nation faces, the, 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 the strengths of that nation, and it takes you all the way from the A's through the, through the end of uh, the nations on the face of the earth. And so get that book, study it, uh, learn what's going on in the world. It'll make you a more informed believer, and it'll make you a better Great Commission Christian Because it'll give you a heart for what God is doing around the world. And and it'll give you a vision for how you can be a part of what God is doing around the world. Uh, So learn about the nations. Second Second thing, realize God is bringing the nations to us. We have, to quote some folks I heard in my hometown growing up, we have some foreigners all around us. And guess what? God loves them greatly. And we have the gospel. And we have the freedom to share it in America for the time being, right? And so think about the nations all around you. When you go out to eat at an at a ethnic restaurant or someone's in your neighborhood that is of a different uh, background than you are, God loves them. He's brought the nations to our back door. Let's love on the nations that God has brought here. And then the third thing, learn about the nations, realize that God's brought the nations here. And the third thing is we've got, we've got to go. You know, the unreached nations of the world, the unreached peoples of the world are unreached for a reason. They're hard to get to. And the ministry is difficult. A lot of the countries are closed countries and they're in all sorts of turmoil and hardship. And so we're going to reach them. We're going to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Somebody's got to go. Right? Somebody's got to go. We're called to to pray that God would send out labors in the harvest and, and send and be available to go if God should send us. And so we're all called to be Great Commission Christians, either going or holding the rope. We're all called to be a part of making the glory of Christ known among what? The nations. God cares for the nations.